Nå er det tid for nordisk på trikk. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. I have found that I've been able to have some amazing experiences and do some amazing things that I'd never be allowed to do unless I had a job and was being paid for it. But I have been able to have those experiences by being a volunteer. One of the pleasures of volunteering to emcee the concert venues at Seattle's National Nordic Museum is getting to meet the musicians. The bands and groups that play at the museum or midsummer festivals, Swedish pancake breakfasts, or local Scandinavian dance venues are not professional. They may get some small remuneration to play, but it can't be much. So I've been trying to get to know folks in Seattle's Nordic community, and I've found these musicians willing to share about themselves, just as they share their love of Nordic music, of playing together, and being recognized as part of the Nordic community themselves. You may have heard some of my other podcasts with Alfred Morton Heurup, Ruthie Dornfeld, Birgit and Phil Ages, Rachel Nesvig, to name a few. And in this podcast, I'd like you to meet another band and its main spokesperson, Ruthie Sudness Winter. This group of five, known as the Winter Family Band, plays Nordic favorites, as well as songs that Ruthie knows were important to folks in Norway and America when her family were immigrants to the United States. The band plays these songs and explains what they're about in order to celebrate and share the old songs, of course, but for Ruthie especially, she particularly wants to honor her parents and her relatives from Norway. Music obviously is integral to every culture, just as the cuisine and the language and the traditions, all of those things define what that culture is. Songs, of course, are frequently stories. In the old days, traveling troubadours or minstrels of Europe came into villages and sang about old and new events, about love and loss, and about remembering where you came from. Those groups were often families, just as some bands are today, and as you'll see, the Winter Family Band continues this tradition of two families, the Winter and Sudness families, making music together for us to enjoy and learn from. If you're not an immigrant from another country, and I'm not, it's hard to fathom the struggle to learn a new language, how to make your way in a new culture you don't understand what people are saying, and you're just trying to do what you can to earn enough money to survive. Now, this wasn't special to the Scandinavian immigrants of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, for we know that millions of immigrants and refugees emigrate to new countries today across the world. So what you're about to hear includes experiences that are shared among all immigrants. Ruthie's father, Pete Sundness, 
is an interesting case because he documented his experiences, which Ruthie later collected into a book. And so I'd like you to meet Ruthie from the Winter Family Band to learn about her family's music traditions and learn a little of the amazing stories her father wrote about and what it was like to be an immigrant to the United States during the Great Depression and the Second World War. As usual, when I interview someone, I ask Ruthie to start at the beginning. I was born in Seattle, Swedish hospital, um, soon after my parents arrived from Norway. Uh, in 1940, 1946, I think they came. My sister was born, and then I was born in 48. And my mother was like 37. She couldn't speak English. So uh, I was definitely born into an immigrant world. Um, and uh, like a little Norway because we grew up speaking Norwegian because my mom couldn't speak English and she had just had Norwegian friends. So I have a strong relationship to Norway, I should say. I know from what you've said in your book that frequently your father wasn't around. Uh, he was off earning money for the family, right? Right, fisherman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's mostly you and your mom and brother, sister. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. So you were you were born in Seattle, though, right? Right. Yeah. So you, I have read that. Well, you called your band the Winter Family Band, and you've right. said something about there's been music for a long time in the family. You want to trace how far back that goes? Yeah, my mom is the musical side of the family. Her father uh, was a fiddler, and he bought an organ for the girls. There were five girls in his family, and they all learned how to play the organ. So when she came to America, we got a piano and she had her guitar and then my sister played the cello. I played the violin. My brother played the accordion and the steel guitar. And we kind of always played that Norwegian music that she knew. She taught us the music, especially my older brother, who was born in Norway. As our family brand uh, grew, he was the one that taught us the music because he was the one that remembered it, as well as my mom. And he was the leader of our band, family band, and until he couldn't anymore. And so Chris, my cousin Chris, who was always around, cousin Chris Svehaug, he played the accordion. And so we all played together, you know, Christmas, Easter, family occasions, anybody's birthday, we'd always end up playing our music. So one time I always had such one of my parties had a whole crowd of people and someone said, oh, will you play for our uh, Eulafest at Daughters of Norway? And I said, okay, if you think we're good enough, we'll come. So then, then it snowballed. Then somebody says, oh, will you come and play here? Will you come and play there? And we always had these family tunes, which we play today. Okay, I was going to ask you about that, whether what I associate with Norwegian American favorites are in fact, sounds like, true, yes. at least in the old days. They're Norwegian favorites that are true to their hearts. In fact, when we play, sometimes the old ladies come up to us and said, I sang every verse with you. I knew all those songs. So the old folks know the songs, but the younger ones don't. But we, we, our mission is to preserve these old <laughs> tunes. And uh, because they're slipping away, like one song we play is in Liten Lukisko. It's a uh, tango. Well, nobody remembers that. My younger cousins in Norway don't even remember that. And it's nowhere on the internet. 
we can't find it. And so someone at Midsummer when we played last week asked me about it, where they could get the music. I said, it's all in my head. It's it's learned. It's passed down through the generations. Not all of our music, but some songs are not recorded at all. I don't know any other bands, you know, they're dance bands. They play for the dancers and we like to play for the dancers too, but uh, basically yeah. we play old, cherished Scandinavian, Norwegian Scandinavian songs. So you said you concertize at Daughters of Norway, probably every venue there is. Right. The Greater Seattle area plus. Yeah. Uh, Swedish Club, oh, Heritage Nordic Museum. Museum. Yeah, we play Julefest and any chance we can get to play at the Nordic Museum. And we played for the National Convention of the Daughters of Norway in, in Bremerton last year. That was a big honor. People from all over the United States and of course, Lorianne Reinhall always makes sure that we end up at Bergen's place at Sittenamai and, and at the Life Erickson Sons of Norway stage at Sittenamai. So it's a real pleasure to share our music. It's a big joy for us. You've said that on your website that, in fact, you have found ways to continue oh God, being yeah, heard right. into the pandemic um, era. In the early right. days, you know, we didn't know where the, the, the contagion came from, so we all stayed outside we continued practicing and then we set up our big garage which faces a kind of a major street uh it was open to the public and so we we set up a stage there and um seats and we would announce it to the neighborhood we put signs up and so uh people would come with their masks on standing six feet apart just kind of scared we were the first live music they'd heard in ages and so we did that every couple months and people, people would, uh, you know, tell other people about it. Pretty soon we got a pretty good crowd. They'd be dancing in the street and they were so thankful to hear some live music. We all felt safe doing that outside. And so you weren't forgotten when things have started to loosen up. They thought, I, you know, I remember my good times on that street and we're going to get them booked again, I hope. That's right. Well, we're going to do it again this summer. The neighbors are calling for more music and <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> that is fun. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your the book about your father, how you stumbled upon writings, tapes, and you mentioned letters and the evolution of that. I kind of knew my dad was always writing for the last part of his life. When he'd retired, he's always putting down his thoughts about his life. but we were busy with our lives and we didn't ever talk about it. And he didn't talk about it, but we'd see him writing in this book. And then in his mid seventies, late seventies, he got cancer. And then he started writing in earnest. And then after a while, that was too stressful to write. So he talked into a tape. So then after he passed away, we just didn't touch that for 20 some years. And then I retired and I thought, oh my gosh, I know there's all this information here. I need to look at it. And so with the encouragement of my husband, I tried to transcribe all of his little scribblings. You know, he didn't ever learn proper grammar. So some words were half Norwegian, half English. And sometimes the story would be told multiple times. So I had to try to figure out a timeline of all of this, piece it all together, make the grammar work, make the timeline work. And that's how we came up with the book. Now it's in his voice. I started it in the third person and that didn't work. The first person, his voice really made sense. 
so I hope his story comes to life. And my favorite part is the episodes of Close Calls. Uh, according to my view, he shouldn't have lived past the age of 20. Because. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Especially when he was in that tree in Norway. Yeah. He and his friends climbed up in the tree and the guy sawed down the tree. This was a big tree. And he came crashing down. Just wanted to see what it was like, you know, coming down in a crash tree. And then all of his crazy episodes. He should not have lived past like 17, actually. And then his episodes, close calls in Alaska with the bears and the trappers and the storms. It's amazing that he lived a full life, pretty much a full life. He passed away at 82. So that was my favorite part. And I didn't know any of these stories until 20 years after he passed. He, you know, these Norwegians are very stoic. That comes across. They don't want to bother you with their story. You're so busy. You know, you're so busy with your life. I'm not going to ask you to sit down so I can tell you my story. No, 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 no. So I, I really discovered my dad through this book. And it was a wonderful thing for me because I realized he, was, he had a whole different life than I thought. I thought he was this boring fisherman. Right. And then I learned he'd had all of these adventures and it was just marvelous for me. Well, I think that choice of first person is makes this magic. It reads as almost as a story. You say he's a fisherman, but he was also a logger and a trapper and a mate on ships and all kinds of stuff, right? Whaler. and Whaler. Forgot about whales. <laughs> and the ships he sailed on when he came over when he was 17, he'd ship out. They were sailing ships, frigates. Right. They had all of these full sails and he was climbing up unfurling the sails and one time the rope broke and he happened to throw himself across the yard arm and saved his life yeah i mean that right there he should have passed away right there and i think a lot of young immigrant boys did die they were kind of expendable those young immigrant boys yeah that that was an interesting part of his life too you get that sense of he's charmed but he does mention a number of his friends along the way that got killed in a logging accident or oh, yeah. fishing accident and so it, it definitely highlights that it, it's dangerous work yeah the logging especially yeah and his neighbor from Belsvik, Norway was one of those killed and that was a terrible thing for him his best buddy that he came over to the states with and then years and years later that family came to visit us here in Seattle and wanted to go and find his grave and of course logging companies didn't even hardly take notice of those little immigrant boys there was no record of his death but they're still mourning that poor boy so my dad was lucky he survived that and i got also that i'll say it's not true for me today is guess the norwegian community was fairly close-knit even across washington and alaska like he would go stay with people or right. He wouldn't have a house and they just take him in and feed him and right. he'd do the same. Hospitality was huge. It's huge with the Norwegians. Yeah. And they had yeah. that connection in Alaska. All those Norwegian fishermen would take care of themselves. They were family. Same on boats and, and helping each other out. What he bought several boats and sold several boats, right? He right? Went through quite a few boats. Yep. And knew how to fix them all too. Well, those wooden boats, right? Mm -hmm. He spent the winter fixing them. So they'd be ready yeah. in the nets so they'd be ready for the spring fishing season. Yeah, it was fun. I feel like I spent my childhood on Fisherman's Dock in Salmon Bay. And those were only fishing boats, salmon boats and halibut boats way back then. You would never see a yacht or a, a pleasure boat. Never. 
they were not allowed. <laughs> and now it's kind of sad to see that's all there is. But I just love to go down on the docks with my dad because he would spread the nets out on the pavement there to fix them up and to sew them. And um, I just hang around. And my mom, having just come from Norway, the little girls in Norway had a big satin bow in their hair. If you look in pictures way back then, yeah. the girls always have these huge, big white satin bows. And she'd always put one in my hair. And there I go with a fisherman. And they all knew me down there until I had to start going to school. That was the end. <laughs> and then the proof that all this was happening too is it are these pictures. I mean, pictures of you <laughs> as a baby and a couple years old. I'm like, that's Ruthie. But you notice in his memoirs, I think I get one sentence. Ruthie was born. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Fishing was, the fishing stories were so much more important. He was a very smart guy. He had a great recall. So he remembered most of that. However, he had lots of receipts and bills and fishing information so he could get dates and time. Yeah, I don't know if he kept a journal, but there was a lot of information there that would help him remember. I enjoy these receipts that you printed in the back of the book. I see how much he got a pound for those sockeye salmon. And I was at Costco yesterday, $20 a pound. <laughs> and he got $2 of two cents, I think, a pound. Right. The fisherman way back when. Yeah. But, and even that price went up and down. Sometimes he barely even broke even or didn't, right? Oh, right. Some years. And there were strikes, fishing strikes, the cannery strikes, and the fishermen didn't fish. And they had to tough it out. Yeah. I don't know how my parents made it. When I go to the fisherman's terminal and see the trawlers with the big poles that go up and reading here that, yeah. you know, several times he either had to cut his off in order to survive a storm or whatever, but he heads inland yeah. and has to get his own trawling poles, right? He did, right, right in the forest. Yeah. Yeah. You that's bet. Really well, that's, <laughs> that's delightful. It, in some ways, it, it's a thrill for you to discover what your dad was like in this other realm, it's probably kind of sad that you were never able to talk to him about it. That would have been neat. Yeah. Yeah. Very quiet guy. You know, those old Norwegians. I know them well. Stoic is the word. Stoic. stoic. Never whining, never complaining, just stoic. Never self-aggrandizing, the total opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Never bragging like there's the one story when he, he was out in this horrible, horrible storm and a lot of boats went down and he had to fight, fight, fight for like 48 hours or something. He didn't get any sleep. And finally he limps his way into port and someone asked how it was. And he just said, he hardly said two words. He didn't tell them what a terrible life-threatening storm he lived through. Just didn't say much. No, nope. yeah. he wasn't bragging about how he made it through this awful storm. <laughs> I, my grandfather, I remember, I'd go fishing with him, river fishing, and something where he a couple times hooked his thumb or something with a hook or managed to get that out, and he's bleeding profusely and just sort of wiping it off casually. I go, Grandpa, are you okay? I mean, that's got to hurt like the devil. And he goes, well, it stings a bit. <laughs> right. And did you read the story about the halibut hook going into my dad's hand? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine that. Those are big hooks, huge hooks. Yeah. Yeah. Fishing is one of the most dangerous occupations in the world. I believe uh, one, it. In the statistics uh, a while ago, we're saying one boat goes down for every day of the year up in Alaska. Honest to God? Wow. Yeah, what I read a while back. 
So how did you get to typing it up? It looks like you self-published. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting story. I have a busy life, so I never could sit down and actually type for hours and hours to come. So my husband, Mike Winter, is a retired aeronautical engineer, Uh and the equivalent of Boeing in Turkey hired him for two weeks to come and help them with a plane they were making. So we went to Ankara, and I I stayed in like a a worker man's dormitory. We had two cots in a little room, and while he was gone all day, I brought my manuscripts with, and I typed and typed and typed. I had nothing to bother. So all of those two weeks, I just typed and typed and typed away. It was magical. There were no interruptions at all. And that's what I got half of it done at that time. Is it hand typed or was it typeset? Well, I hand typed it and sent in the document to the publisher and then they said it. I decided the font and how everything, the chapters and how it should all go. And then they they said it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very, very professional i've i've seen a lot of hand typed books <laughs> this is this is great wow my first book your first book and only <laughs> well never yeah. say never you've mentioned that your father finally had got enough money to send for the family and yet due to circumstances they couldn't get on the boat. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, my parents got married. My father came at 17, but then when he, 13 years later, his dad was ill in Norway. So he went back to Velsvik. And at that time he met my mom who lived in the neighboring village. And so they got engaged. He went back to Alaska for a fishing trip, came back within nine months and they got married. And then he stayed maybe six months, nine months, And then he had to go back to Alaska again because that was his only income. So he went back to Alaska. And in the meantime, World War II started and it just got worse and worse. And so he worked with the U.S. Embassy to get her passage. And when that came to her in Olson, remember, they didn't have Internet. They just had telegrams. Telegram came to this travel agency in Olson. And he told my mom, come right now. Come, You have to leave now. So she just had like 24 hours to get everything together and get money together and um, get down to Oslo to get going. She had a ticket to Petsamo, Finland to catch the USS American Legion. And then that was going to go to New York. But once she got my brother now is like uh, one year. Because my when my father left, my mom was pregnant, so he's he's about a year now, and um, and when she got to Oslo, the Germans were already there, and there was chaos, and she went to the uh, Norwegian consulate, which was supposed to issue this ticket that was allowed by the Americans, and they were in such an uproar that they said no. <laughs> It took a while for them to say, no, they said, come back, come back. We need this. We need that. We need this hard, hard to get all those documents, you know, when you're in Norway at the time, but she managed to get everything they wanted. And then they finally said no. And so she had to go back to her farmland. And that's the boat that took uh, Princess Martha and the kids along with all kinds of other famous people. So I think in the end, they just jammed all the famous people on and denied the other people were promised passage because US, U.S. government, by this time, my dad's an American citizen. And so they were trying to get all American citizens out. And my brother 
was an American citizen because my dad was, and that was the ticket out, my brother, because he was an American citizen. And But still, in all the chaos, they wouldn't let her go, and then the boat took off, and so she was stuck. And then she got this letter from U.S. Embassy, welcome to America. Oh, my God. Please take the next boat out. Well, the next boat was seven years later, so... It was a it was a tragedy for them, but but then I think this happened to a lot of people. I that think. is a long time to sustain a marriage and a family. It was it was, and so I have this pile of letters written between them, which have been sitting there since they were started in the '30s, mm. all the way until my dad came, and I've only read some of them. And I'm only reading them now because I thought they were so difficult to read. They were on that onion skin where you could see both sides and they're in Norwegian and this dialect. And I thought, oh, it's going to take me forever. But once I got the hang of it, it wasn't that hard to decipher and read. So just last, not this winter, the last winter, I started reading those and I got the full impact of those seven years. And I haven't gotten through all the letters yet, but what I've read is just heartbreaking you know, how she missed my dad. And she tried to describe every little thing that my brother, who was a baby, so that he could get bonded with his dad. And, right. and they had no money. You know, the U.S. government wouldn't allow, wouldn't allow any money into Nazi-occupied lands. So she had zero money and was uh, dependent on her in-laws. So yeah. Yeah. it was a tough time. And I always felt like it was just my mom who, who suffered like that. But as I read other books, I realized a lot of Norwegian fishermen families were caught in that same situation. That's, that's amazing. So you said that your family came from the Olesund area or your father? Yeah. yeah. In the Fjordlands. To get from Olesund to my grandfather's farm, a bus, a ferry, a bus, a ferry, and a bus. There are a lot of fjords. <laughs> and it's not that far away as the crow flies it's probably an hour <laughs> yeah but those little fjord communities are hard to get by it's on the stoda fjord rovde fjord uh the closest little town is volda which has a hospital and you know teaching university mm-hmm. um, cute little town what i've noticed that i like is the ferries and the trains and the buses are integrated so the, sometimes the ferry won't leave the dock until the bus shows up Isn't that and gets on. It's like, really? That never happens around here. It's perfect. <laughs> They're perfectly synchronized. Absolutely amazing. Great system. Yeah. Your Bunad must be from the Olsund area. Oh, yeah. It's a Sunmarsh Bunad. And my aunt did the embroidering. On my 40th birthday, it was a surprise for me. My husband, Mike, and my cousin, Knut Olesundness, got into cahoots with each other and said, I think Ruthie needs a bunad. So they arranged for my aunt to do the embroidery. It took her 10 months to do all the embroidery. And then the shirt also has all kinds of embroidery on it. And then we went to Norway that summer. And then they surprised me with the bunad. It was so wonderful. Such, such a surprise. And I, I was just so thrilled. And now I get to wear it all the time when I play music with the winter band. It's really effective that you're also the spokeswoman for the group, too. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> you are the Norwegian package right there at the microphone. You know, it's all there. So you've been back and forth to Norway many times as you grew up, including the University of Oslo summer program. Yeah, I was really lucky that the Life Erikson Sons of Norway gave me a scholarship. I was tipped off by my Norwegian instructor at the UW. 
And he said, you ought to do this. And so I did. And they provided tuition and travel expenses back and forth to the United States. Yeah. And that was huge. That was huge. Because my parents being fishermen, you know, they couldn't afford anything like that. So that was a wonderful experience for me. And then I had an aunt and uncle living in Oslo. So once the summer school was over, I enrolled at the University of Oslo and, and stayed with my aunt and uncle. And then finally, I got a place in Studentbien Posogen, where all the students live. Right. So I moved in there with all the students. And oh my, that was one of the best years of my life. And then finally, when it was all over, I had to bite the bullet and come home because the university system was so different. Yeah. They, don't, they don't match. They, um, I did take classes. They gave me a few credits. They don't work on the credit system, but they, they did arrange, connect with the University of Washington and said, okay, we'll give her so and so many. I got half the credits I should have had, but I didn't care because it was such a wonderful experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I made friends. In fact, I still connect. I had a Finnish roommate from Finland who was also studying. I still connect with her and I visited her. I still connect with uh, a friend that I met on the, we took the Oslo Fjord from, from uh, New York to Oslo. Uh, there were a lot of student, Norwegian students going home on the mm -hmm. boat. And I studied at the University of Oslo with that one guy I met on the boat. And we still send Christmas cards. So it was just, I made lasting friendships uh, at that year and a half. That's amazing. And you worked at yeah. Steen and Strom, huh? They gave us a month off for Christmas or something like that. So I, I went and applied and um, I worked in the toy department and I was dressed like Hunts. They made it all into Hunts and Gretel. And so a journalist from Dogblad came and interviewed me one day, took a picture of me. And, you know, I have a, a article in the newspaper, picture of me in my Hunts and Gretel outfit and wrote an article about, you know, American student working at Stenestrom. Yeah. You were dressed as Hansel, not as Gretel. No, nope, there was another Gretel. I was Hansel. And that's how I had to come to work. In that outfit, I had wooden clogs. They gave it to me and I wore it. I was, I was just so happy to have the job. And it was, you know, Stain and Storm was the only department store. The very best. Okay, so what's the connection? And it seems to me it had something to do with your dad coming over here. How, What's the connection with the Svehaugs? Yeah, Oli Svehaug is my great uncle. He's my grandmother's brother and my mom's uncle. And Chris, cousin Chris Svehaug, who's my accordion player, is his grandfather. And Uncle Oli was our contact in Seattle when we got here. Did he own a boat or was able to get your dad onto a boat? He probably made connections for my dad. Yeah. Uncle Oli came at a very young age, also not speaking English. You know, he has a whole nother story. He got his master mates and pilot license and then became a captain of a ship. Yep. And then World War II came along and he became captain of a huge ship, huge Navy ship. Wow. So he was pretty well-known kind of famous guy here in the Norwegian circles, Captain Oli Svehaug. Well, you have your other life as your day job as well. You want to tell me about your teaching career? Yeah, I got my art education and certificate as well as degree, as well as a minor in Norwegian language and literature from the UW. I was just a couple credits short of a double major. 
and uh, teaching jobs were kind of hard to come by. I moved to California and couldn't couldn't get anything but a substitute job. So I thought, okay, while I'm waiting for my teaching job, I'll I'll go in the airlines. So I ended up working for the airlines for 11 years, and so I had all kinds of flight benefits. So I could go back to Norway. I could I could travel. So and then when that ended, there were strikes and airlines were purchased by other airlines and we were all laid off. Then I went back into teaching. When I went back into teaching, I couldn't get an art job. So I became a reading specialist and then finally went back and got my master's in ESL. Couldn't get an ESL job, but then came the art job. Then I got the art. I loved it, loved it, loved it. I taught art until I I retired. So the ESL wasn't that long. No, I, I would help the immigrant kids at my school and I would talk to the staff about being an immigrant. So my mom was, I, I knew the troubles of an immigrant parents and missing home and not knowing the language. And, and then the kids end up being translators and they have to run the house Yes, because the parents don't know what's going on. And there are a lot of responsibilities for these kids. So I advocated for those kids at staff meetings and other meetings. And then I would have after school programs for them. But my main job was art. Wow. Very good. So you've also mentioned that you helped get your students published with regards to little things that they made. Oh, right. And since I was an art teacher, they let me handle the publishing department. And uh, the mission of our school was writing. And so they were in this big, huge writing program where every kid had to write for 45 minutes a day, every day, five days a week. To begin with, they could write about anything they wanted. They could have any story. And then I typed it up and I printed it up and published it in a hardbound book. I learned how to do that. And there was sewing involved. There was book binding. There was all kinds of books and we published about a thousand books. And then every year we had an author's day, we brought in a published famous kind of author to speak. And then uh, we brought parents in adults in and the kids could read their books to the adult. We celebrated them as authors. Yes. And the books had all the things a, a real book had author's page, everything. It was like a real book and it was just wonderful. And these kids really learned the craft of writing. They came out of five years worth of that being really good writers. So I was proud to be a part of that program. Hey, who was the person at the professor at the UW that referred you to Leif Erickson or any of the professors? Who did you have? I had Professor Semsdorf. Do you remember him? Semsdorf. Henning. That department has generated a lot of relationships and connections. I have a couple of Henning's books, actually, because I'm into folklore. And so was he. So he's written a couple things there. And I loved my time with the Scandinavian department. Oh, one thing I didn't mention, I had a Norwegian restaurant at the time, kind of a spinoff of that. Yeah. I don't know if you know Kathy Hansen. She's a professor of Scandinavian language and literature. She worked at PLU for many, many years. Okay. She still does translation work. And so I had just come back from the University of Oslo and we were roommates and we were making open face sandwiches, smörbröd. And we start catering it around to like different events that were going on. And someone says, oh, you should start a restaurant. So we did. And it was called Cosa Croa. And that lasted for a summer. And then we had to go back to school. But we served lunch and coffee and dinner. 
and it was served family style. And I think Semmersdorf was a part of that. Semmersdorf and Orstad, they all came and all the Norwegian students at the University of Washington. It was, it was pretty magical. That was a magical summer. Wow. But of course we didn't make money because we served real butter and <laughs> big heapings to everybody. And so it, it was not productive money-wise, but it's a treasure of memories. I'd like to play one of the songs that's on one of your CDs. You, you want to talk a little bit about how people can get a hold of you and your group? I guess there are CDs available for them. We have a website. It's called winterbandseattle.com. Pretty easy to remember, Winter Band Seattle. And there's a website put on by Bandzoogle. They do a pretty good job. There are some snippets of recordings of our songs there and lots of pictures, lots of history. And last year, Lorianne Reinhold and the Norwegian American wrote an article on us. So there's a really nice article that pretty much gives a history of who we are. If anybody's wanting to know what we do, where we've been, that's a great place to find us. I'll make a link to that from our episode page. Are there one or more of your songs? Ones that I know you're very careful to give some of the history and the the story behind it. You want to pick one or two and talk about them and then we'll play it for the listeners? Yeah, I think there's one song that probably not many people know. Well, the Norwegians do know because it is is on the internet. It's called Mm Søstrene fra Flatholmen Fyr, Sisters from the Flatholmen Lighthouse. It's a lighthouse in Southern Norway. Uh, where when it's stormy, it's super dangerous for all boats. And back in the day, probably late 1800s, there were families that lived in the lighthouses and there were two girls. They would row out in their little skiff out to the shipwreck and rescue these sailors. And then one time the sailor was so thankful that he wrote a song about the girls. And this was a song my mom loved. And there were like 14 verses that told the story and she used to sing them. It was special. It's special because it was special to my mom.
so that one has a, a great story to it. So about these stories, I didn't think anybody would be interested in the stories. But when I first started playing in front of audiences, I it was just came natural to me as a way of introducing the song right. to say a little bit about them. I found out later, they said, oh, don't forget to tell the story. Because I, I thought I probably shouldn't be talking so much. And I go, oh, you like the stories. Okay, okay. Then I'll tell the stories. It was interesting to me that they like to know what, what the song was about. Well, I agree with you. It, it makes it just that much richer, especially if it's in Norwegian, right? And even if it's yeah. in English, you don't always follow the words. Right, but people like that. I think so. It makes uh, the song so much more meaningful. So I know what I want to ask. So did Mike, your husband, play bass when you met him? Um, no, he played the trumpet. I played the violin. We were in lo little local symphonies, the mm -hmm. Boeing Symphony for many, many years. Yeah. So we were symphony people. And then we went back to Minnesota to the Winter family. They were auctioning off all the farm and the, the contents because all the aunts and uncles had passed. And there was a big bass and there was a fiddle. Mm. And so we got a big van and we piled the kids in and we went to Minnesota and we picked up the bass and his grandfather's fiddle, which I play today. So we brought them home and then Mike started playing the bass. Yeah. And uh, yeah. He's very talented with that bass. He doesn't practice a lot like I have to practice, but he he's a natural on that bass. And it has so much history because there was a winter family band in Minnesota oh, with yeah. all of his eight, nine aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins. Maybe there are 12 or 16 of them. They all had instruments and they play at dances. And this old bass, they'd go from dance to dance place on a mm. horse-drawn sleigh way back in the day. And the bass was on the sleigh. And... One time in a snowstorm, they went across a, a fence post that knocked the base mm. up out and it broke its neck. So the neck is bolted on. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the splice, you know, where it's bolted on and there's it's kind of got some tape here and there. It has a yeah, lot of character yeah. to it, but it plays just fine. So we are so happy to rescued it before they had this auction. And, and my and my violin is a beautiful violin. It's beautiful sound. I, I really like it. Yeah. So how'd you end up roping in Chris and Lyle and Dusty? Well, Chris has always been a part of our family band. He's always brings his accordion and he and my brother, they have dueling accordions and play the music. So Chris has always known the music. Now, Chris has been in a rock band since he's been like ah. 16 and a whole bunch of rock bands. And Lyle and Dusty were in his last band Got it. until just a few years ago. He asked if they would like to join us. And so they did and they stayed. They're still in different bands. They hang in there with us and we're so happy to have them. Uh, little mandolin sound. It's just a great little tinkle. You know, it sounds so great. I know it. Isn't that great? He, yeah, yeah. He always wears some kind of hat. Yeah. Because he's full of music absolutely full of music every little note delights him and he's so happy when he plays he just can't wait to get to music practice can i just say one thing about uh, my grandfather was a fiddle hans hans my mom's dad hans osevik was a fiddler and mike's grandfather was a fiddle i'm using mike's grandfather's fiddle but my bestified hunts, his fiddle doesn't exist anymore. And this is why. In his younger days, he was the hot fiddler in the area and he played at all the dances. My parents come from the Bible Belt and dancing was 
that was only bad things happened at dances. And so the dances were really looked down on by religious people. And so when my grandfather married my grandmother, he became very religious. One day he took that violin. It's an evil thing now, this violin. He took that violin, rode it out into the middle of the fjord and threw it overboard. So that's where that fiddle ended up. And personally, my cousin told me that story in 2016. I had never heard of it, but I did read in the Norwegian American a couple of years ago, Lorianne had a story about the evil violin and there was a documentary, but I, I could never find that documentary. I want to know what is it that this Violin is so evil, was so evil back in the day. I know harping fiddles were prohibited from being played in churches till fairly recently. That's a wonderful story. Yeah, a little, little side story. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ruthie. Well, this is I really appreciate it. Yeah, very much so. So glad you're interested in my family stories. I love stories. Yeah, so do I. Okay. Okay, thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye. Be safe. Be safe. So that's an introduction to Ruthie Sudness Winter and the Winter Family Band. I recommend their website to learn more about them. That's at winterbandseattle.com. There are other winter bands out there, so you want to make sure you get the Seattle one. I'll put links to their website on our nordicontap.com website. Be sure to visit that read the newspaper articles that I'll provide links for, and leave a comment, especially if you're used to listening to the show on a podcast service like Podbean or Apple Music. That's fine, but we'd love to get your feedback on our website. You may have noticed the wonderful new introductory music written by Morten Alfred Heurup and played by Morten Alfred and Ruthie Dornfeld. Morten Alfred, by the way, was my very first interview on my very first podcast. Wonderful guy. I refer you to his website, mortonalfred.com, where you can get a link to order a book of folk tunes composed by Mr. Hoyrup, appropriately called Ingela's Waltz, 25 Danish Folk Tunes. Or you can email him directly at mortonalfred, all lowercase, at gmail.com. I just got my copy in the mail from Europe, and I'm having a great time playing his tunes on the piano. Our exit music was composed and performed by my friend Daryl Jackson at DarylJacksonMusic, all one word, dot com. On his website, you can click the music tab and hear the whole song. It's called Southbound Train to Reason. I can report that we're working on a new folktale podcast of Norwegian folktales in both Norwegian and English, so you can hear these stories in the vernacular as they were originally written. It should be a fun time. So that's our show. Thanks for hanging out with me. I'm Eric Stavney. We'll see you soon. Viseas on Nordic on Tap. Mm-hmm.